I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17, if you're in the Blue Pew Bible, you'll find that on page uh, 822. Matthew 17, right there at the beginning. You know, if, uh, if you're somebody here who uses GPS often, maybe on your phone or in the, in the car, which I know probably most of us do, uh, if you use that to figure out how to get somewhere on a regular basis, you're probably familiar with the, the feature that's there uh, where you can, no matter where you are, you can zoom out and you can see the whole path of where you're going. And uh, it, it's really helpful to have that, to have the big picture. Um, because not only can you see where you're going, but you can see uh, how you're going to, to get there or maybe how you're not going to get there sometimes if it's Google and it's taking you the wrong place. So the big picture view is important. Uh, well, that's, that's sort of what we're getting this morning uh, out of Matthew chapter 17, there at the beginning, as we turn to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, up to this point, as we've been working our way through uh, the last couple of chapters of, uh, of Matthew's Gospel, especially chapter 16, there have been some really important dialogues that Jesus has had with his disciples, dialogues about uh, who he is, uh, dialogues about uh, the, the church and what the church is, the nature of it, and and about his impending uh, death or suffering, death, resurrection, uh, and, and last, uh, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And then all of a sudden, beginning of chapter 17, it's almost like Jesus hits the zoom button uh, and, and, and zooms out, uh, and we get to go on a journey with Peter and James and John, three of the disciples, ourselves there, and we're given this 30,000-foot view of what's, I would say, what's really going on and what Jesus is, is really about. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a big-picture view. This is one of those passages, that I think, that's intended to bring clarity and to motivate. And uh, it helps with establishing priorities. Uh, and so I, I hope we'll be able to use it in that way. So again... Uh, Matthew 17, I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, this passage on the transfiguration of Christ. This is God's Word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. 
And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then what do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we, we thank you for this, this account, uh, this bit of history that we are given. Uh, and we do pray, Lord, that you will help us to have understanding of this in the context in which it's given. Help us to be able to, to, to see and understand what this is about and to take it, therefore, and apply it to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to remain in your truth, we do pray. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Now this, this passage, the transfiguration of Christ, uh, has always been a bit of an enigma, a, a mystery, kind of like an unsolved puzzle in a way. And, and maybe I'm talking about my history a little bit and reading through it and, and trying to grapple with it and understand it. But also if you, if you look at different accounts, people have different thoughts about exactly what's being shown here and, and why. Um, and we can see it here, and you can see it in the other gospel accounts, uh, that it's a, it's a bit like an interlude, or almost an interruption, that's, that's thrown in here in the middle of what Jesus has been doing with his disciples. And, and not only that, but it can seem to be a bit strange. It's, it's different from the rest of what we've seen, much of the rest of what we've seen up to this point. Uh, a little bit like what you might, at least this comes into my mind, what you might read out of like a fantasy book. I know that, uh, that, that we might read to our children. Uh, years ago, our children were smaller. We would read these books called The Magic Treehouse, a series of books, got fantasy books. I see a couple of nods out there, people that have... Uh, come across those before Jack and Annie who have all these adventures that happen and this strikes me as kind of like one of those adventures it's, it's got a beginning and an end and uh, and some fantastical things seem to happen in it it's almost like one of those things you might say to your your child after after you've read it uh, now this is only make-believe things like this don't really happen Yet this is history. Uh, in fact, it's all, just like everything else that we've been reading up to this point, it's, it's given as narrative. Uh, it's given in real life terms. If you look at chapter 17, verse 1, uh, Jesus, uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Matthew says, and after six days, so there's, there's a time frame that's given there. Six days later, after what went before, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
This is an eyewitness testimony. And the language as we go through seems to affirm that. Now, if you look down verse 9, Jesus does use the word vision here. If you're in the ESV, it's translated vision. He says, uh, tell no one the vision. But the word that he uses actually means the things that you have seen with your eyes. In fact, if you have the NIV, it translates it this way. Don't, don't tell anyone what you have seen. And so I, the, the sense that we get, and I would take it this way, is that the disciples were there. They were up on the mountain, and they were eyewitnesses to something that was very real. And that's something that we really can't miss as you go through this passage is, at its heart, the glory of God. Now, that's what these men were to see and to witness. And really, I, I think that's the key to understanding this passage, what it's all about and why. Now, we're not gonna, there are a number of things that aren't given to us here, and we're not going to understand everything. But at its heart, the glory of God. Uh, and we can see that, I think, in every aspect of the account. Uh, first, Jesus takes them up on a high mountain. Think about mountaintop experiences. They are often a place where something wonderful happens, even glorious. So there's that sense, and we see that in other places in God's Word, not the least of which is the one that we went to earlier with, uh, with Moses. Um, then you've got this change that comes over Jesus, uh, in which clearly it's His glory that's on display here, an outward change that takes place, and they see him in his glory. Then there are two men that are speaking with Jesus, and uh, we'll talk about that account later, but uh, amazing, Moses and Elijah, you think about who the men were and when they, when they came from and, and, and all the various aspects of them, and then you got uh, the the cloud, a bright cloud that comes over them, and this majestic voice that comes out of the cloud. Same thing that, that happened at Jesus' baptism uh, with a voice clearly uh, pointing to the, the God's Word. This is uh, the Lord God speaking, the Father. Um, and so putting this all together, what we've got, and this is what I, the title I gave to this sermon is, a glimpse of heavenly glory. And I think that's, that's clear all the way through. And, and that's what these men are eyewitnesses to. And that's what Jesus intended. But what about the other question? Why? Why would Jesus take these men to be eyewitnesses to this? I just suggest that we, we think about that a bit. Now, these disciples knew Jesus. Not only had they followed him closely, but they had confessed we saw that in chapter 16, confessed that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they believed it. But at the same time, we see the account of these disciples all the way through, even into Acts, after Jesus was resurrected, just before He rose from the dead. But we see that they had a limited view of who Jesus really was in terms of the big picture. And so it's, it's pretty clear that Jesus takes them there in order that they might see in a greater way, that they might 
have their eyes open that they might uh, go far deeper and see the grandeur of God and of Himself, the Lord Jesus. Uh, and probably before, this is key, before He leaves them, because He was going to leave them soon, uh, He wanted their view of Him, uh, of God, to be expanded and deepened so that they'd see the glory of God and know God in a greater way and even be enraptured by God. He wanted them to see Himself, the Lord Jesus, for who He truly is. Even if it was just a, a, a glimpse. And even though they knew by faith in their hearts uh, who He was. You know, the first step of the, the Christian faith is that the Holy Spirit comes inside of us showing us our need for Christ. Showing us something of the poverty of our souls so that our hearts are inclined toward Him and no longer inclined toward the, the temporary trappings of this world, the idols that we're, we're so prone to go toward. That is the work that, that the Lord does inside of every believer. And in doing that work, we come to have what? We come to have a love for the Lord Jesus. But think about it. At that point, even though we may be turned to Jesus, we have a love for Jesus, but, but still we lack an understanding of who He is. We lack a knowledge of God. And so, therefore, what, what God intends for us, and certainly this was the intent for the disciples here, uh, is that our eyes would be opened more and more as we live the Christian life as believers. Our eyes would be opened to be able to, to see Him and to know Him in a greater way, to know the glory of God so that we will be helped as we live our lives, so that we live our lives out of that, out of a knowledge of who God really is. Now, we are surrounded by people who are completely devoid of the knowledge of God, of, of any true sense of the glory of God. It's a life in which you're, you're really dependent upon yourself, and you're dependent upon your circumstances in which you live, and, and therefore upon your own uh, interactions with those and your feelings and your emotions. It, it can be kind of like you're riding a wave and at times you're, you're up because your circumstances are up and then other times maybe someone says something or you have a loss in your life or there's a sickness or whatever it might be and so uh, you, you, you crash. Um, now Christians are very subject to this as well. In fact, all of us here are from time to time. It could be because person is young in the faith, or it could be because there's something that, that's standing in the way of, of knowing God, uh, of failing so that you fail to see who, who God truly is and, and what He has done. But things change. Things change drastically when you know that God is, remember we read earlier, infinite, eternal, unchangeable. In His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And again, these are just words. But when we, when we see those out of God's Word and we're convicted by the Holy Spirit in our hearts of who God really is in all of His glory, then, then, 
We're in a place in which we're ready to live our lives out of that. Now, that, I think, is what the, the disciples here are given in, in symbolic form, in visual form. Uh, but that is what God desires for us as well. So that when you have that, when you more and more have a knowledge of God and you know the glory of God and you begin to live out of it, when you begin with that, there are a couple of things that we see in this passage that, that happen with us. Number one, it will guide how we respond to life's circumstances. Secondly, it will, it will reform our weaknesses. And then finally, it will help us to see what God is, is all about, what He is doing, what He is about. Uh, so first of all, when we have this, when we begin with the glory of God, a knowledge of God, uh, it's going to shape how we respond to life's circumstances. There's, there's one uh, writer uh, that I was reading. He, he said, as our knowledge of God goes, so goes the direction of our lives. As our knowledge of God goes, so goes the direction of our lives. You know, we, in this account, we've got uh, these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, kind of like an inner council of the disciples. There are a number of other occasions when Jesus uh, took them aside. Uh, and in this passage, it's clear, they're shown the glory of God. And they hear and experience the glory of God. And, and, and Jesus knows that they need to witness this because of the things that he knows are ahead for them. Now, a good question that is often asked here is, why these three? And why not the other nine as well? This is one of those things we can't know for certain, uh, but I would, would think from this account and from what we see the context in which it's given, that this may have been because they were the leaders. They would take the lead amongst the apostles. Uh, you can see when you go to the book of Acts and uh, think that the Holy Spirit is, is first given uh, to the, the disciples. Remember how Paul stands up and begins to preach and preach with power. Paul, for those next several chapters, is a central or the central leader. And then you got John alongside of him. And they stand up, chapter 4 of Acts, against the Sanhedrin. And throughout, John is there. And we know John carries on all the way to the end. He is the last of the writing apostles. And we see all the books that he writes as well. He's one of the leaders. And then you got James. Now, how is James a leader? Well, James is, is the one among the twelve who is the first to be martyred and to spill his blood for Christ and have that walk of faith uh, in which he goes to his death. So he's a leader, but a different kind of leader. And so it seems reasonable that Jesus gave this to these three in order to prepare them for the things that they had ahead. Now, as we look at this passage, right at the heart of it is this transfiguration of, of the Lord Jesus. The, the word, the Greek word that's used there is metamorpho. What word comes to mind when I say that? Metamorpho. It's metamorphosis, right? And, and, and that's where our word comes from because that's what happens 
with Jesus, there's this outward change that, that occurs with uh, Jesus uh, in which it says that his face shone like the sun. Now think about the, the sun. What do we tell our, our children? Don't look directly at the sun because if you do, the brightness will cause you to go blind. Uh, that's the sense here. Uh, he, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. You got this blinding brightness, Jesus, emanating from him. And, and white, white's often a metaphor for holiness and for splendor and for majesty. Uh, the disciples here are given a taste of the heavenly glory of Christ. They're actually John Calvin's uh, words, the heavenly glory of Christ. And then after some amount of time, there's this bright cloud that, that comes that overshadows them. If you remember the account with, uh, with Moses, very similar. It went up on the mountain, there was this cloud that enveloped him. And the word that's used here, it may mean that it enveloped uh, the disciples. And, and the cloud represents clearly the presence of God. And then they hear this voice that's speaking this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And when you put all this together, we are given a, a visual representation. They were given a visual representation of the transcendent glory of God. You know, Peter later will speak of having seen this in Second uh, Peter uh, he says at one point, and notice how he's applying this uh, to, to life, and he's showing how this has helped him. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. These men were given an understanding of who God is in all of his glory, even though it was only a, a glimpse at this point. But they were given it so that they could live out of that foundation. I want you to think for a moment about two different ways of, of approaching God and understanding God. You know, the first is that we begin with our circumstances. And we know that God's there. Maybe we know something about Him by God's Word. But we go through our circumstances and, and we conclude out of those circumstances who God really is. Now, we may deny that, but internally, that's, that's what we do is... As people, as we go through circumstances, we can conclude that he's either great or he's weak, or that he's near or he's distant, and on and on, who God is. This is a person who doesn't really know God. And again, he, he may, may even be a believer and may know about God, know, know certain things, what he's like, but there's no real foundation there. Uh, he, he, he's moved by the circumstances in which he finds himself. Uh, but the other way is to begin with the, the truth of God, of who he really is, that he is sovereign, that he is holy, that he is just, that he is good, 
uh, that he is wise, that he is powerful, all powerful. You know, if, if we begin with that and we know that from Scripture and from the Holy Spirit working in our heart to more and more see and to know and to understand who God is, and then we come to our circumstances of life, think about how that changes things. All of a sudden, you're able to, to stand on solid ground no matter what you're walking through. You know, Steve Lawson says this. He says, Knowing God and beholding His glory is foundational to everything in our lives. To build on any other footing is to build on shifting sand. Either we live for the glory of God or we do not live at all. We only exist. And the takeaway there is we need to, to know God. We need to behold the glory of God. You know, just as the disciples here were able to get a glimpse of God, of who He truly is in all of His glory, we have been given the resources. We've been given the, the, the fullness of His Word beginning to end in order that we might understand and know God. We've been given the Holy Spirit that He interprets this and helps us to see and to know, understand, this is important. Uh, and therefore, we come to a greater and greater knowledge of God. That's, that's God's desire. Uh, now, in that, I, I'll just mention, we have many resources for that, including study groups and, uh, and, and being able to get together with one another in different forums. I'll also mention... Uh, as, you, as you go out, we got a book card out there, and we put books on there and changed them out. Uh, ones that, that help us out of the library that are related to this. Wonderful resources uh, that are there. You know, uh, God does intend for us to know Him as glorious. And when we do know Him that way, it'll guide our response to Him in life circumstances. Uh, it will also reform our weakness. Our weaknesses. Now, this entire scene that we're given here, it not only highlights the greatness and the glory of, of God, but it also shows the weakness and the frailty of the disciples. In one of the other accounts, we read that uh, James and Peter and, and John, even at this incredibly important moment, that they were sleepy, that they were tired, and there's this, it appears that they, they, they fell asleep. They were overcome with their tiredness. And, and when they woke to see what was going on, they saw Jesus there talking with Moses and, and Elijah. You got Peter um, who blurts out these kind of strange words, uh, out of place, you might say. Oh, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know, there we can we can look at a number of different uh, things about the context and and maybe see some of this in, in not too bad of a light. But when it comes down to it, this was this was a pretty foolish statement. <laughs> this was Peter stepping out and and just beginning to talk. He, he he had to say something. He was in fact in Luke's account it says he didn't know what he was saying, but he said it uh, anyway. There's. There, again, there's a sense of, of, of weakness there, and probably we know that well if we know our own selves, our own hearts. Uh, look at how 
the Lord addressed uh, Peter in, in, in verse 5. It says, verse 5, and each of the accounts say this, He was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. And then we hear the words of, uh, of the Father. Have you ever been cut off by someone, maybe someone that is in a position of authority over you when you've been talking and going on and on, and they just step in and, and cut you off? Uh, it's a form of rebuke. And Peter was not only cut off here, he was kind of enveloped in a cloud. Uh, you know, again, a, a sense of rebuke. And what we see here is the difference between Peter and the others in their weakness and their frailty and the greatness and the glory and the power of God. You know, the question is, what is God doing with us? on a regular basis? What is he working especially? What, what kind of character, what's the central uh, character quality, you might say, that, that is constantly being produced inside of those who belong to him? In a word, it's humility. Humility. Isaiah uh, 66 says this, All these things my hand has made, says the Lord. And all these things came to be, declares God. This is the Almighty God. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, as we come to know the Lord, we come to see Him in all of His greatness and all of His glory. God's at work. He's at work, kind of like a, a surgeon who's constantly cutting away and stripping away pride, uh, hubris, uh, sin. Uh, he's at work. Think about, uh, speaking of Isaiah, think about Isaiah himself. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, we get this wonderful picture of, of Isaiah. Uh, he, he's, he's been living, it seems, in his ministry perhaps for, for some time, but he says at one point, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And then He fills in the rest of the scene, and we see the Lord God in, in all of His glory. And remember what the immediate response is that we get from Isaiah. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he said this, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Notice the two can't go together. Uh, the Lord God in all of His greatness, all of His glory, and His pride, arrogance, sin, unclean lips, they couldn't remain. Uh, you know, if your life manifests pride, and you know it, which is a fairly rare thing because uh, often we're hidden, uh, we're blind to our pride, but, but if you know it, then what you lack undoubtedly is, at least to some extent, is knowing God for who He truly is, pride, and a recognition of God and who He truly is are incompatible with 
one another. Listen again to uh, what the Lord says He is looking for. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now think about what happened with the disciples. These three disciples, after they heard uh, the words from God the Father speaking, uh, it says that, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They had experienced the glory of the Lord. They, they had seen and known His greatness and His power. And they, in all of their weakness and sin, uh, recognized they couldn't stand in the presence of, of the Lord. And so they fell on their faces. But look at what, what happens next. Verse 7. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. You know, it's the exact same thing that happened to Isaiah, isn't it, in that account, Isaiah chapter 6, when the seraphim came to him and touched his lips with a burning coal and said, Behold, your, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This is what it looks like to truly come to know the Lord God. It's both of those. It's that He constantly reforms. He's reforming us inside. He's he's bringing out and drawing out as we we come to see Him and all of His glory and who He really is. Uh, He's cutting away the pride and the sin that's there inside. And we're we're driven to the floor. You ever been in that place? But then what does He do immediately? Just like Jesus did, he, He touches. And He says... Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That He does this work of reforming our hearts, and He lifts us back up, and He restores us fully in our relationship with Him. And so, more and more, we come to see and to know God is glorious, and more and more, He's doing this work inside of us of bringing us more and more into the character and image of Christ. So, First of all, He'll guide our and form our response to circumstances. Secondly, reform our weaknesses. But finally, as we come to know the Lord, who He truly is, it will help us to see what God is all about. And, and this makes sense. That when we come to know the Lord, that we'll have greater clarity on what He's doing and what He's about in this world, we'll understand Him in a greater way. We'll be able to see the big picture to a greater degree. Now, part of this scene that we're given here includes Moses and Elijah in bodily form speaking with Jesus. Now, a natural question would be to ask, how do the three disciples know that it's Moses and Elijah there? Uh, did they recognize the clothes that they were wearing? Or did Moses... Was he carrying the Ten Commandments or something like that? You know, we're not given. Uh, we can we could guess at that. We're not told. But what we are told is that somehow they knew. And what we can see here is Jesus, Moses, Elijah, together speaking with one another. And another account tells us that they were speaking about uh, the Lord Jesus, His departure, His exodus. Uh, and so... We get this picture here 
what would have come to the minds of these three disciples? Well, Moses is a clear, he's a representative of the law. Uh, you know, over a thousand years before, you know, Moses, yet here in bodily form. Uh, and then Elijah, he represents the prophets. And so this is undoubtedly bringing out this uh, this connection between the Old Testament and the New. And you know, Jesus often uses that shorthand term, uh, the, the, the law and the prophets, to describe uh, the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures. And so here we get a picture of the Old and the New being brought together, focused upon Jesus as they talk about His departure. And we can see that all the way through, it's pointing to this, this, this one centrality to the Lord Jesus, to His departure, and then ultimately to His resurrection, His exaltation. And notice, this is what the disciples are given visually here upon the mountain as they experience the glory of God. They're given insight into the bigger picture. Now, Jesus will give that later. We talked about it last week on Easter. Uh, Luke chapter 24, when He describes himself out of all of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, but here, they're being given that in, in, in picture form. Now, uh, we see this a little further. We see it already happening uh, uh, because they're, they're getting this bigger picture here. They're able to see what God is doing. And, and we see this come to their minds and their hearts as they head down the mountain. Uh, look, at, look at verses 9 and 10. Uh, Jesus has just spoken about His uh, resurrection, rising from the dead. And then the disciples are reminded about a part of that bigger picture that they now, they don't understand, but they were thinking about Elijah there. And uh, the disciples ask Him, well, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They're talking about a prophecy. A prophecy out of uh, Malachi uh, that says that preceding the, uh, the, the coming of the Messiah, Elijah will come, or Elijah will be sent. Uh, and it was because of this prophecy that the Jews and the scribes, the Pharisees, they, they pointed to this prophecy and they said they couldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah because Elijah had not come before him. Notice, they didn't know God. And so they failed to see the big picture. But Jesus explains to the disciples that are there that this prophecy uh, wasn't referring to a literal Elijah, but a figurative Elijah. And Elijah had come in the form of John the Baptist. You can look at verse 13. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Things began to cohere. The picture came together. You know, some people feel that they've got to understand everything. Understand everything. Then they will trust and they will follow. They will cling to. You know, that was the scribes. That was the Pharisees. But the, what the Lord is looking for from us is a heart that's submissive to Him. A heart that's willing to say, I don't. I don't understand it all. Uh, but I trust in You. And I'm going to cling to You. I'm going to follow You. 
I'm going to seek to know You in all of Your glory. And then as we do that, as we come to know the Lord more and more, what does He do? He opens our eyes to be able to see what He's about, what He's doing. And that helps us, doesn't it, as we live our lives. Our eyes are open. Our eyes are given understanding. You know, there was, uh, probably heard about him, uh, a theologian from over a thousand years ago, uh, Anselm, that said this. He said, our faith must seek understanding. Notice the order there. Our faith must seek understanding. Not that it might believe, but that in believing, in believing, we might come to understand and see. And you can say, no, the God of our faith. That we have faith that we might have understanding. You know, that's what characterized Moses' interaction with God. He, he, he knew God. He had seen the glory of God. He had heard God's Word at the burning bush. He was up on the mountain and, and, and knew the glory of God, knew the nearness of God. But what did he do? Later he said, Please, Lord, show me your glory. That was his heart. That was his desire. And out of this, what the Lord is doing, what He desires for us to do, is to have that same heart that says, please, Lord, show me Your glory. Help me to see You. Help me to understand You more fully. I don't need to know everything up front, but I trust that as I come to know You, You'll do that. You will bring understanding to me. But as I do, I'm going to deepen my relationship with You. And I'm going to live my life more fully out before you. And I'll walk with you. And I will know you. You know, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, He said this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and He with me. He invites us to, to come in, to spend time with Him, to know Him, to walk with Him, to go deeper with Him, to know God in all of His attributes, because He's given us to know that. And as we do, as we see Him in all of His glory, what does it do? It helps us. It helps us in uh, the circumstances of our life. It, 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 it helps the way that we respond to those circumstances so that uh, we're in a right place. Uh, it reforms our weaknesses and our sin. He's constantly doing that work inside of us. And it helps us to see and to know what the Lord God is about, what He's doing in this world. And doesn't that help? When we know what the Lord is doing, we can, we can open up his word, and, and we see in there, uh, we turn to whatever page, and, and we can see what it's saying about us, what it's saying about God, what it's saying about the situation that we're in in this world, and what it's saying about what's most important for us the gospel through and through. And so he says, Come and go deep with me. Please join me in prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you. For the ways that you work. We thank you for the way that the gospel works. And that you have made it such that 
that we turn to you and we trust in you and we follow you, that you work inside of our hearts to have a greater and greater desire for you. Uh, and then you provide for us as we seek after you. Uh, at the same time, Lord, we know that there are many temptations in this world. There is much to pull us away from that. And so we pray, Lord, keep us focused, keep us centered as individuals, as families, as a church, and as your larger church around us. Uh, we pray that you will help us to remain centered upon you and upon the gospel, uh, that it would be central. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.